Anakin Uprising. Great tune. Yep. We are starting to get together our website more. We are. <laughs> and the reason what reminded me is that Mannequin Uprising includes our friend and patron Ice, and he has begun to write articles for the website. <laughs> it's pretty clever. He calls them the memory hole cinematic crusades. Oh, my God. And what he's doing is this came out of a conversation that he and I had about a movie that he saw when he was a kid, like Sunday, you turn something on and you see it, and it's got this scene in it about you know some guy who at the end of it is like running or driving through this like field of mannequins or something, and uh, you know there's like some mayhem, and he's never been able to figure out what the movie was, and so we were having this conversation, and I'm like, well, do you have any guesses? And we had this talk about it. He's like, no, but I'd really like to find it. So then I said, well, pick a, let's pick a movie, and then maybe you just keep watching Mannequin Giallo or whatever until you find it. And so out of this came this column. And so the first one he did was on this horrible movie called The Killer of Dolls. And then we just, uh, this past week, put up his second article, which was about Spasmo, which is a pretty famous giallo with mannequins from 1974. And so there's two of them up now. He's going to do one every couple of weeks. Actually, every two weeks on Sundays, probably this it'll come cool. out. Yeah. And so he's on the hunt. But but that was kind of the fun premise of it. And mm-hmm. now he's just really just basically maligning these, <laughs> these movies. He says it's a ridiculous movie, a ridiculous premise. If you watch it, much like me, you'll regret it. <laughs> yeah. I think the, the the beginning of this next one starts with, this trash is about yeah. two brothers. So you're like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> so I love it. We know where we're at. Mannequin boob count, 18 plus. <laughs> I know. That's hysterical. He counts the naked mannequins. He, uh, he puts in lists of quotes. He puts in like what I learned kind of thing yeah. at the end. And then he rates them like one out of five mannequins three out of five mannequins That's awesome. as far as the rating is concerned but you also get a sense of what it's like and if you like that sort of thing you probably have a pretty good idea whether or not you'd like it after after reading that but also i know that kathy has some stuff she's doing mm-hmm. for the website and so do i i'm doing some movie reviews so we've only got a few things up right now but we're working on it we're going to get more regular with it because well I like to write. It's fun. It is fun. And there's a lot of stuff that I know you've written. I've written. I have, you know, I, if you want to send us an email and pitch me an article or something, like we're not paying you, of course, at this point. But if you need, you know, some exposure online and you want to talk about horror movies or true crime or you have a reaction to one of yeah. our episodes we're or something. All, again, we're always looking for ghost stories oh yeah so kathy's always gonna throw that i'm always looking for the supernatural stuff we're actually our book clubs moved moving on the next book that we're reading is hell house and it's it's by um matheson who wrote i am legend and i've started it and i'm already like this is gonna be cool oh yeah he's great he wrote when dreams may come he wrote a lot of movies that you you know he's written a lot of books that became movies that you'll recognize famous i mean if you're a horror fan you know richard matheson so yeah yeah we're gonna start on that one for those of you who want to read along for the book club whether you participate in our patron membership book club or not like whether if you just listen to the show and and like to have read the book we're talking about uh we are starting hell house by richard matheson and we usually read i think my breakdown is like four weeks four four weeks of yeah, it reading. tends to be like 75 80 pages a week yeah that's about what it is and so 
read along with us. We just finished The Twisted Ones by T. Kingfisher, which we will talk about later. After today's on the show, we're talking about the college admissions scandal, Operation Varsity Blues, which is the Netflix documentary that was made out of it. But we're going to talk about the scandal in general. And I realize not a whole lot of new things to say about that, but... You know, we could I talk some, psych about it. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. Yes, I have some <laughs> thoughts. We got thoughts as we do. I mean, we wouldn't really be doing this if we didn't have right. thoughts. Right. I mean, we, we usually share. We usually have thoughts and opinions about things. <laughs> yeah, so sorry. But that's what you show up for, and we really appreciate it. Anyway, check out the website as we build it. There's also our shop on there, and we just got mugs in and and <laughs> which everybody was like where's the mugs you're sold out yeah the mugs are in and we have patches on the way mm-hmm. um embroidered patches that are going to be you can either buy the patches for yourself if you want to put them on jackets or backpacks or whatever but i'm also going to be making some beanies and hats with them as well so we're going to have we've been at, people have been asking for hats yeah so we're going to do hats and there are t-shirts on there already and there are sweatshirts on there already although i don't have a great picture of the sweatshirt yet so we're just we're building it we're working on it but i have sold t-shirts and sweatshirts and mugs and things even though it's not perfect so yeah show up if you want one the pictures of the mugs and the t-shirt were done professionally so they look fantastic <laughs> the rest of it I'm working on it. So that's happening. But I did want to mention that it's Valentine's Day almost. It is. Yeah. So I think you have a couple of events that even friends are going to. I am. So there were two events. Well, so there was one that I spoke about a week or two ago on February 20th called Endless Night, the Anti-Valentine's Vampire Ball. And they put this on every year. Uh, this one, the one that I'm talking about on February 20th is, is in Los Angeles. And when I first read it, they kept saying virtual. So I was like, that's really interesting. How are they going to, well, people like partying from home, like via satellite dressed <laughs> like, like we've all been doing for a yeah, year and a half all, dressed years. all like Edwardian. So no, they're actually doing this ball. And four of my friends, two, two couples are going to this and it's on a Sunday. It starts quite late and it goes to like 3am, but I've seen my two, two of my friends, the girls, they bought some really cool shit, like classic vampire attire to wear and they're going to be doing their makeup and one of them works for the studios so she has like stuff she's going to bring to do them all up so it's going to be like you know classic vampire ball sounds great so i think that's really cool i think the tickets are about a hundred dollars a piece yeah that makes sense um, i imagine it's a big thing so. yeah and then the other thing if anybody's interested in their specific area i found this really cool website called hauntedattractionnetwork.com and if you go to that you can literally look up all where all the valens excuse me valentine's day haunted houses in 2022 are by state nice so it'll be like alabama here's all the ones in alabama and then it goes down you know to all the different it's just an aggregate of everything yeah, that's amazing so if, if you want to if you want some bloody valentine looks like most states have something going on I recognize it's a lot easier to do when the weather's warm. Like we're really lucky over here because we can have things open like that. I know some of you guys back east have been hit pretty hard, but hopefully this stuff is still open. But yeah, if you go to hauntedattractionnetwork.com and take a look, you'll see what's in your area. Well, and either way, when the weather does subside and calm down, you've got that for all year long, right? Because yeah, I would imagine they, those, all those haunted attractions are, yeah, they change it up for like Halloween or for summer or whatever. Right now they've got a bunch for Valentine's. Perfect. 
perfect. So I think that we have a little follow-up to do. For those of you who listen (laughs) regularly to the show, you may remember that at Christmas time, (laughs) there was a little bit of a hiccup with what Kathy had gotten me this very, very cool gift or what she had in her mind is very cool. I can see how it would have been very cool if it had showed up the way you thought it was going to show up. And so that went away. And now we're finally going to exchange our holiday gifts, Yeah, which are generally speaking, the reason why we do it on the show is because they are generally speaking either horror related or goofy. So I am going to actually hand you yours. Okay. I try with Shannon. It's hard because like we get a lot of the same stuff for each other and we go to a lot of the same events. So I have to be a little bit creative. Um, so this first, which is what I attempted to do with this first piece of that trash. was very creative. The idea of it was awesome. So I'm first going to give you just like the standard one I always give you, okay. and then I'll give you your other the one. other one where you got creative. Yeah. <laughs> and I also have a bag here that's ridiculous that has uh, some standard items that I usually get you, but have like a twist to them, okay. and then a ridiculous thing, of course. So this obviously was supposed to be given at. Christmas time. Yes, so, yes. But I, I'm, I believe in a holiday all year long. This was a funny mug, and this, of course, is for the movies inside. Okay, so she just handed me a mug, and it's black, and it, oh, and I got an AMC gift card, because we do that. So there's 25 <laughs> on that. Nice, perfect. And then the mug is Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, and it has a reindeer stuffing Santa's ass down into the chimney and it's a black mug and I love it because it's got the deep like it's a good ho- it's like a, it's almost like a camp camping mug yeah almost. yeah like you could put little pasta or something in there yeah and get it out of there I love that thank you so much oh you were over oh you were gonna yeah so I've okay. so this one now is yeah. um so Shannon if you watch the show enough you know that watch <laughs> sh- I mean listen. one day one day we will do videos actually <laughs> we're gonna live stream eventually our recording days but not quite yet so Shannon has a love for Kane Hodder. It's true. And so I thought that I would bring a mini Kane Hodder <laughs> for her to have always oh. on her desk. Oh, Kane. From his f- famous role. I'm looking okay. forward to this. <laughs> oh, and it's very fragile. Oh my gosh, what is happening there? So it's, <gasps> it's bottom of the lake omg so you really need to so i'll try to describe it you can turn the light off at the top i take the cork out and then twist the little thing at the top okay so what i'm looking at (laughs) is a glass as a drink like as if you had a drinking glass and it has a cork in the top like a wine cork and then there's a little thing that turns on the top and inside the glass is water that's why she had to be careful with it there's water and then Jason or Kane in his famous role, mm-hmm. uh, like in the rocks, changed to the bottom of the ocean of the lake. Yeah, or lake. Sorry. Yeah. <gasps> so it's it's a lamp, but He's obviously ama- you're not. And it has read a little light. That's yeah. the little lo- that's the little thing that you turn. Yeah. Omg, that's amazing. <laughs> I, just, I saw him and I'm like, that is so funny. And I'll have to take a picture because yeah. that's that's something people need to like buy and yeah. have. Yeah. Amazing. It was it an Etsy? No, thing? it was not an Etsy. Okay, it was a, cool. I found it somewhere else. All but, right. Um, yeah, oh, <laughs> love it. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> oh wait, come back over here. Okay. I have this my gift is not as creative but I think it's fun anyway (laughs) there's some gifts in there there's a a little Christmas bag of course with a little dog on it because Kathy's a dog person 
Anything with fur. Anything with that fur. That isn't human. Agreed. Okay. So, you know. It's a cute bag. Sure. Oh, my God. This takes me back to childhood. Yeah, I got a little, little Nickelodeon slime. A little Nickelodeon slime. <laughs> I might have to slime Shannon later. Yeah, I, I figured I was, like, signing my own slime warrant there. Yeah, you were. <laughs> oh, I love my Jason. So, oh, Kane. I know. Bottom of the lake. So funny. That's so cool. Okay, so this will stay here in my little my little office space. Yes. <laughs> Which is, you're going to need a bigger table over there. She's got snacks and gifts I've given her and cups. And <laughs> God, what socks? Shannon always gets me good socks. Oh, the Grinch. <laughs> oh, these are cute. Yeah. Green. Green socks. Excellent. There's always some sort of ridiculous socks. Oh, I love fun socks. I know. Yeah. I just abundance. like to add to the collection. Plus I have socks wear which, out. Look which ones I have on today. Oh, look at that. I, these I used to run. She, she bought Are those me the Friday the, the 13th, Friday the 13th ones? ones. Okay, cool. Because yeah. I could see the big 13 from here. Yeah. We still sit in the studio about six feet apart. <laughs> We're very conscientious. And then, oh my God. I have, I this get This is games. a game, which I love because the stab one that we played with my family was hilarious. Oh, nice. Or don't get stabbed. Yeah, yeah that's what it's called. Yeah. This is called making bad situations worse. Right. I feel like this is a, a game that ice would come up with. Oh. <laughs> Right. The adult party game where you try to submit the worst reactions to bad situations. Yeah, if you look at the card on the back, you'll Roll get the die to select and read a bad situation. One, the horse carrying my carriage develops diarrhea. <laughs> Two, I take a sick day from work and run into my boss at a bar. Three, my gynecologist tries to create an echo while I am in stirrups. <laughs> I discover my unborn twin in between two fat rolls. Five, a homeless man sticks his hand down my pants. Or six, I discover my most recent ex-lover is a different gender than I thought. Uh, and then ask the other players how to make it worse. How many people do you need to play this? Because you and I might need to play this. I don't know. It's just, I mean, it's a card game and it's, yeah, three. And it's, it's for kids. Three so. That is funny. But well, we could gonna... also just read the cards. I mean... That's hilarious. I don't see why we need three people. You just read the card and ask the person how to make it worse. I know. It's like, okay, so I've discovered a um, my twin it has been living in the folds of my stomach. Right. How's that? How do we make that worse? You can't. <laughs> Although sometimes I come across these really disturbing facts when I'm doing horror facts, like, you know, some tum tumors have teeth. Mm -hmm. and hair yeah i was going to say make the twin a vampire yeah okay that would make it worse that would make it worse right like, like you know a little yeah. benign twin there on your tummy was right. one thing but a vampire twin that's actually trying to bite you and has you know sucking your blood regularly right. that would make it a little bit worse that would <laughs> so okay can't wait to hear about that. That's one. hilarious. Anyway, well, we might happy have to holidays. <laughs> we might have to open those cards. Yeah, <laughs> happy holidays, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I, you got Kane all the time. I know he's right here. Uh, you know, uh, and he's got his little fist going like he's about to bust out of it. Part part of that was just also because we had just finished that series too, and I'm like, oh, this is perfect timing. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. 
Thank you so much. Yeah. Love that. So today on the show, we are going to do the Operation Varsity Blues college admissions scandal, the Netflix doc. So we're going to, are we, are we the doc, but we'll also just talk about the case and all that, whatever. Did you have something else before we, don't we have a little horror facts? Yes, we do. Oh, but there's one thing I wanted to do first before the horror facts. So I just wanted to share this ridiculous article that I got from Pepper. Oh, Jesus. Killing over fight about mayonnaise ends in life sentence for Iowa man. Prosecutors said Christopher Erbacher spotted Caleb Solberg outside a cafe in Pisgah and ran him down with his truck in 2020. This is in Iowa, Logan, Iowa. A fatal hit and run that stemmed from a fight between friends over mayonnaise has ended with a Western Iowa man being sentenced to life in prison. (laughs) Let's see how we got there, shall we? Let's see. Christopher, 29, of Woodbine, was sentenced Monday. This was, this, this is really recent. This article is from February 4th. Was sentenced Monday to a mandatory life sentence after being convicted in December of first-degree murder in the 2020 killing of 30-year-old Caleb Solberg of Moorhead, the Des Moines Register reported. Investigators have said that the men were eating and drinking at the Moorhead Bar the night of December 17th when Erbacher put mayonnaise on Solberg's food. (laughs) A fist fight between the two men ensued, and Erbacher left in his truck making threats to hurt Solberg and others. The threats included calls to his half-brother, whom he later confronted and whose vehicle he rammed with his truck... That's never a good sign. Oh my God. Prosecutors say later that night, Erbacher spotted Solberg outside a cafe in the nearby Pisgah. And Is it from Florida? It's Iowa. Oh. And, Close enough. I mean, they could have been born in <laughs> And ran him down with his truck. He doubled back and ran over Solberg twice more to make sure Solberg was dead. That's really where you cinched the... The murder, the intent, yeah. right? And called prior to call, say he had just killed his brother. So he like then admitted it afterwards right. and wanted to brag about it. Erbacher unsuccessfully sought to reduce the charge to second degree murder, arguing he acted recklessly because he was drunk and didn't intend to kill Solberg. But unfortunately, that part where you rolled back over him a couple times and then called his brother afterwards, like, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Where does she find these? For mayonnaise. I I do believe she's probably following every Reddit on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think she, well, I think this is what she likes to read about. And so. I mean, it's entertaining. And we've always, we, I mean, back in the day, we did what the hell segments all the time. So we're. This is a great what the hell. Pepper and I are in line. We are all in line with that interest in ridiculous crime stories. And I also think most people think that. That's amusing. It is amusing. I mean, there were some people that I think listened to us that first season when our sound was bad, but we were really giving it the all because of the what the hell segment. There are really are some stupid people out there. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Impulsive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All for mayonnaise? Yeah. Well, that's the thing as shrinks, right? You yeah. know, it wasn't about it's the not mayonnaise. About the mayonnaise. <laughs> but that it was what that day's argument was about. But sometimes mayonnaise is just about mayonnaise. Sometimes, Maybe it you was know, about mayonnaise. putting mayonnaise on someone's sandwich could get you killed is the lesson there. So, you know, boundaries, people. Yep. Don't be fucking around with mayo. <laughs> <laughs> so the next thing we would like to do is a little segment that we like to call. Yes. <laughs> 
Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I'm so ready. Number one. This 1990 horror film was Walt Disney Studios' debut film directed by Frank Marshall, whose formula modeled after Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Okay. Number two. Zombie lore dictates that there are only two ways to kill a zombie. What are they? Okay. Number three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that yeah. usually comes after two. <laughs> what 80s serial killer said, quote, choking is what I did and I was pretty good at it, end quote. Mm-hmm. In addition to this, he told the police that sometimes he would go back to the disposal sites and have sex with his dead victims. Mm. That's a horror villain, you said. No, this is a serial killer from the 80s. Okay, I was going to say, that doesn't sound like a horror villain. No, this is a real person. Okay. <laughs> Number four, what rating was originally assigned to Ari Aster's Midsomar? And number five, this horror novelist was a college dropout who published his first book at 18. He is known to have created the genre of the detective, like the detective genre. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Yep. Five, right? We got, we're having trouble counting today. Yes, But five. I believe that was five. That was five. Thank you so much. We will be right back. We're going to talk about the college admission scandal and much more. Thank you so much for listening. back let's talk college admission scandal i did want to just quickly say that we both watched operation varsity blues which was the college admission scandal doc on netflix now this was part of a list that i read a a few weeks back i guess about some of the better documentaries that came out in 2021 and i remember when we had that conversation you were like "Ooh, i don't think we should add the richard ramirez ones to that because i didn't think it was that great Mm -hmm. well now i'm going to add that this one shouldn't have been on the list yeah it was whatever because it was whatever i mean okay so it was an american documentary about the 2019 college admissions bribery scandal the movie stars matthew modine as rick singer who's the main uh quote-unquote character in this con basically and the way this documentary is put together is that the reason why you have an actor matthew modine is that they recreate a bunch of the the scenes and the drama in this and way more so than your average documentary that has recreations this isn't just a recreation this is interviews but also an actor basically creating the narrative and and it's like part fiction, part documentary. So I thought it was pretty cheesy, honestly. That part was a little weird to me. There was a lot of cheese to it. (laughs) Not the good kind either. Yeah. And I like Matthew Modine a lot. I've always liked him as an actor. It has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with him being fabulous. No, it was just a weird way to do a documentary. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, 
I don't mind weird. I don't mind unique. I don't mind trying to be creative, but it was boring. Mm. You, like you just can't bore me. Mm. I just was not engaged by it. And I think that they were u- trying to use that device in order to engage you in right. a non-traditional way. It's, uh, it's streaming. It's kind of hokey. The, the recreations were kind of hokey. Again, nothing to do with Matthew Modine, but I mean, I think they were definitely trying to make a mountain out of a molehill as far as the documentary was concerned. Like there's just not too much to this story, but I think, you know, in 15 minutes, we'll probably tell you all the things, Yeah, (laughs) all the mountains that can be made out of the molehills in the story. But maybe Kathy, tell us a little bit about this story for those of you who've been living under a rock in America. So, I mean, as someone who did graduate school at USC and teaches there. I certainly had a front row seat to this shit show. Mm -hmm. Although as we know, USC was one of like, you know, five or six schools that were really involved in this. But they did highlight USC a lot in this documentary. Very much so because USC was where a lot of the celebrity parents were trying to get their kids in. And, and it's just really interesting to me And it's unfortunate because USC is a really good school. It's a research one university. It's a private school. It's the only reason why it's not considered a UC is because it's private, but it is a research one university, but it has gotten such a bad reputation for being a school that doesn't take itself seriously because of all of the controversy that we've had over the past, you know, 10 years or so it's quickly becoming, you know, a a school that people talk a lot of shit about and have a love hate relationship with. And it's also known for, you know, USC standing for the university of spoiled children. That is unfortunate because for me, I know it's a really excellent school, which is also why a lot of these celebrity parents want their kids to go there. There's a certain reputation there, but it was one of like five or six schools. I believe Harvard was involved. I'm not sure if Brown was involved or, and maybe Yale, but there were a number of, of Ivy league schools. What happened was 20 parents have pleaded guilty in the scandal. Um, this is anything from it cheating on exams bribing coaches to get children admitted to elite schools as athletic recruits based on false credentials. So Rick Springer, who, by the way, Mm. still hasn't been convicted. He's still riding around in his privileged Porsche all over California. Because he turned evidence. And they also think he had relationships with some of the judges and things too. But long story short, he had a reputation for a false persona essentially that he would help coach kids into getting them into elite schools, which but there are people you can hire to do there that are to write in better ethical essays. ways. Right. Mm-hmm. So people that will actually work almost like college advisors that will take a look at entry. They'll look at your essays. essays thank you. Yeah. Put together your resume. They'll help you interview skills, that kind of stuff. And it sounds to me like what they said in the documentary is that his business started out that way. Absolutely. Like he had legitimate clients that had nothing to do with the con. That's right. And yeah. that's usually how something like this starts because I can say in a different way, I could see how in my field, I could easily make a lot of money if parents wanted to pay me to do 
educational psych evaluations sure. for certain diagnoses so their kids would get accommodations. That has happened to me before where I've had parents go, I know my kid has ADHD and they need an accommodation. I'm paying for this exam. I could have been that unethical psychologist. Yeah, just and say said, that's what it is. Slip me another grand and I'll put that on the diagnosis, right? So this is, it's easy to slide into that. But we also find out about Rick Springer through this that he did have a past of being a real shady dude that had no problem in violating these ethics. So given the right, the perfect storm, now he's working with these big wigs. He has a lot of power in what he does. Wow, what a great way to start this industry where essentially he is he is being contacted by the 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 you know, the richest of the rich to say, what do I need to do to get my kid into this school? And one of the things about the documentary that I know it was corny, but it did help us get more context because we didn't have this footage were the phone calls where the parents were like, how do you know that this is going to be covered up? I don't want my kid to find out that we're lying about this. Like how much this was really about parents wanting to present a certain way and be able to identify a certain way because their child got into an elite school. I'm going to go on about that in a moment and how dangerous that's become, but 20 parents pled guilty. And we, we know that, you know, Lori Laughlin and her husband are right at the top of that. And, Oh, uh, William H. Macy and, uh, Felicity Huffman. Felicity Huffman. Yeah. So those were the two big you know, big wigs on this, but there were many more that were not as well known. And this just really spiraled into highlighting the privilege of education in this country, because as we know, with the multi-trillion dollar debt of student loans that we have in this country, education, higher education has never been looked at as a right. It's, it's constantly been a privilege and these kids getting to pay their way in takes away from kids who have really worked hard and well, and these kids from and one of the things that happened in this documentary too is one I didn't know that much about this case because honestly I I, I saw what it was in the news and was like oh, okay I know what that is yeah and it's like no <laughs> but, shit that's happening right yeah exactly yeah. like duh but you know that's my jaded <laughs> understanding of con men and sociopaths and yeah. narcissists so it's like oh look another one you know <laughs> type of thing yeah but what I did learn was more about the system, more about how it was done, which was the faking of being an athlete when they're not really an athlete. So he basically had a bunch of athletic directors or assistant athletic directors in his pocket. So they could, they would bring on, you know, Joe Schmo as a crew member and that person's never going to crew for USC or whoever, but they're on the roster for that and they can attend classes and all that and get scholarships. And, da, da, da. and that takes away from someone who's actually legitimately needing a crew scholarship to go to college. It takes a space away from someone who's worked his whole life doing crew. That's right. <laughs> actually doing and it. would legitimately actually serve. Let me say, serve the university by winning more matches because they're a crew member, you know, right. like it's not an empty space on that crew team. Do you remember the part where the the kid was, it was for the water polo and you're like, no, you got to jump a little bit higher. That's not going to look real. I know. I was like, oh, Because they were superimposing all the background stuff. Yeah, and, it's yeah. rough that it had to do with the athletics. That kind of pulled at my heartstrings a little bit because I was an athlete at that age. And yep. I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> Poor athletes that 
don't have the money to go to SC and would have deserved that. And yep. it's just so sad. Rick Springer, obviously, like total narcissistic sociopath. But it's these parents that really bothered me more. Rick Springer's like nothing to lose. I don't have kids involved in this game. If I go to prison, it's just me. I just want money. But what these parents did in, and sacrificed not only their, you know, whether they went to jail or prison or whatever, but the reputation of their children, the potential for their children to get in trouble or humiliated, because not all of these kids knew what was going on. Most of them didn't, it sounds right. like. They just knew that they were supposed to go take the SAT in a room, in a private room with a proctor who was going to essentially take the test for them once they handed it in. Yep. Um, but they thought they were taking it for real. Yeah. And the excitement they show the kids getting in, you know, the videos of the kids getting in, like when they get their acceptance letters and stuff look really genuine. Mm -hmm. Like they were genuinely so excited. I mean, unbelieving of course because they kind of know deep down they don't like, deserve it into brown like yeah. i don't understand how that happened when this person in my class is really a way smarter than me how did they get in but i mean I, the one thing that i would offer to this is that i want to present the idea of the narcissistic extension mm -hmm. so narcissistic extensions are narcissistic supplies for narcissists so basically a lot of times people with narcissistic tendencies, I'm not calling Felicity Huffman or Lori Laughlin narcissists. I'm just saying that in this situation, they come off as if it was so important to get their kids into this kind of school to set them up for success. They had maybe gotten themselves into a place where they felt like they were entitled to have their kids present to the world in an endless kind of, so that they could get admiration and praise right. for how successful their kids are. And that's what we call a narcissistic supply or a narcissistic extension. It's the same thing of when a narcissist has the most beautiful partner and the mo or the most talented or the richest or the smartest, yeah. you know, successful, whatever they prize, usually all those things wrap into one <laughs> partner and then maybe that partner takes a hit, you know, uh, loses a big case or gets breast cancer, something that that changes the way they look, changes uh, how they succeed in the world. And then that narcissist, mm, yeah, like that person's not living up to what they need from that person. They're not getting endless admiration for having a partner that's successful and smart anymore. So then that devolves and, you know, they break up and things don't go well. You know, it's an extension of themselves because narcissists want to look in the mirror. So they need to surround themselves with people that they can see as themselves. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have those qualities that they want in themselves, you're most likely not going to fit into their world or they're not going to see you. Yeah, and exactly. And this is why it's so dangerous to these kids because on the outside, it looks like, oh, they love their kids this much and this is why they want a great opportunity for them. But it really has nothing to do with the success of their children because first of all, you can you can love your child and help them become the best versions of themselves, but this is not selfless. This is all about prepping them. So like you're saying, Shannon, they then look look at how great of a parent I am. Look at who I raise. Look at how smart she is or he yeah, is. Yeah, like I've risen to a particular place in society. Mm -hmm. And so my kids 
need to be a particular way That's and right. look a particular way. I can also see, now I don't know these people. I don't know any of these parents. So I can also see some other reasons why they might've gotten into this too. It might've been part that. It also might've been part, they actually have kids that are so depressed, anxious, suicidal, whatever it is that are you know, manipulating with those emotions, not that they're not valid, but they have all of these emotions like unstable kids who are basically saying to their parents, like, I don't know what I'm going to do if I don't get into the school. Like there's a lot of family dynamics that could be highly manipulative in those situations where the parents then feel that anxiety and pressure and fear to save their kid from themselves mm -hmm. instead of allowing that child to have natural and normal consequences for whoever they are and whatever they've done or whatever mental health issues they may have. Mm -hmm. And then supporting them through that to characterize those issues as things that we need to build frustration tolerance for. Exactly. I mean, money gives us a lot of ideas, right? Like yeah. When we have an endless supply, it's like, well, don't worry about that, honey. I'll, I'll just fix buy it. you into this. Yeah. I'll and I see it. that a lot. I work in, you know, an affluent um, area in my practice and I've, I've had families in the past and stuff where I've seen, they've come to me after they've tried to throw money at the problem. And it's like, oh, now you're incredibly broken and you want me to pick this up. Yeah. So, but here's the thing. So I've worked with families, uh, teenagers, adults that have kids that are in this stage of their life. And this is what scares me now. And I, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, so I don't know if it's, a big city thing, or it's just times have changed or a combination of both. What I will say is my nephew who just started college, he's in North Carolina. There are nowhere near the same pressures there. And there's really good schools in North Carolina, right? Here's what I'm starting is I, or here's what I'm believing is happening. This is all rooted in the problem that uh, college now defines you it creates prestige, right? And I think even in the documentary, they're saying prestige is a, is a French word for deceit. So this false persona, just because you get into a school or you need to know what you're doing with the rest of your life, or you need to compete with the person to the left of you, to the person to the right, so you need to be the best student. I'm working with a kid right now who's on the spectrum. And when he was younger, he was a terrible student. And he's so proud of himself now. But he, you know, he just got the honor roll for the first time with like a 3.6, but he's like, I really need to get that 4.0. And we've had a lot of conversations around what that means for him to have perfect grades. And so one of the things that I keep hearing, which I did not have, and I don't know if you had this, Shannon, um, and maybe it depends on where you go to school, but it's starting in elementary school. So in California, they have something called the STAR, we have, we have something called the STAR program. And so it starts very young. And the way that they frame it is, oh, we just want to make sure that these kids are exactly where they need to be. And we're checking their math and we're checking their English and their science and their social sciences. And they start to test them. They do these program tests every year. It's once or twice a year. My belief is that these are ways for the schools to develop prestige and to compete with one another to see who has the smarter students. And these kids are getting exploited very young. So they're given this idea that everything in life is dependent on how you perform in school, even from this age. And kids are now being forced to talk about college in fifth or sixth grade. They get to high school, they start college prepping in like freshman year. And then for some of these kids, it really becomes 
they believe that wherever they end up going to school, that is their destiny. And this is all because of this stuff that mm-hmm. we're seeing and the way that school has changed learning or what we think is learning. Mm-hmm. And then you add to that, then parents competing with each other or thinking like, oh, if my kid's not at a school that's doing this, are they behind? And then do we have to get a tutor? And I, I've never known so many students with accommodations, tutors, after school learning. I'm like, can't this kid just like go play soccer this afternoon? It's terrifying. Yeah, it's terrifying. I can tell you that I don't work with a population right now that has this sort of access or affluence or entitlement to education. But when I worked on the crisis team, I saw a wide variety, all socioeconomic statuses. So everyone who can't, you know, get food necessarily every day to people who have this kind of pressure. And so this kind of pressure. And what I will say is that the suicidality that I was assessing for, because that's what I was doing on the crisis team, was the same acuity either way. It was just different issues. It was a matter of survival to both kids at each end of the spectrum. So I'm remembering vividly this one kid that I assessed who was very suicidal and ended up having to hospitalize them. And it was mostly because of this intense pressure that they felt from a particular parent that showed up in the room when I spoke to that parent, (laughs) didn't even back off of it when their kid was suicidal. Like, no, can't go to the hospital, have a test, this kind of stuff. Right. Or even like anything less than an A. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was terrible. Like I really felt for this kid, but, and this kid had worked themselves up into an awful suicidal crisis because of the fear of disappointing and the fear of failure and their own goals and dreams as well. And thinking that it all hinged on that, which of course we know as older people that it doesn't, but you get parents who give that message and they're older, they're older and they know better. And then these kids are believing that. And then they end up in my office and I go, listen, that's not how the world works. Let me and, give you a more balanced perspective right. than your parent is. <laughs> because, you know, I always, I used to work for, uh, I was in a group practice. And one thing that I, I appreciated about my supervisor at the time is he would work with these parents and these parents would say to him, but I mean, I'd really need my kid to, to meet their potential. And he goes, really, have you? No. <laughs> you know, and they're like, no. And I said, <laughs> and, and he would say, he's never going to reach his potential. Nobody does. What does that mean? Right. We all do fine. We all figure it out. Yeah. And he would do that as a way to ground the parents to just, you know, look at things in perspective, because right. what does it even mean to meet your potential? That's something that's thrown out there so loosely. Absolutely. You know, you need to meet your potential. Well, how do we measure that? And what is that? What does that mean to a kid who doesn't understand that? things kind of fall into place with life if you're doing your best, (laughs) you know? I mean, like you're not, if you don't get into Harvard, it doesn't mean you're just not ever going to work. No, it doesn't. But I I think also as kids too, we assign uh, things that are, if I don't, it's more black and white, right? Because your brain just hasn't formulated into seeing a lot of the gray of life because you just don't have that perspective. So it's really up to these parents. And that's where that narcissistic extension piece comes in. Because I imagine these parents, many of them could be very balanced individuals in their lives. But when it comes to this thing, 
this thing or with their kids. Or they didn't do well in school. Right. And so now, now they're living vicariously. And yeah, that's that a psychological issue is what yeah. we're talking about. Like that is an issue. Like if I've got a kid and I'm feeling myself compulsively and obsessively pushing them and being rigidly uh, tied to a particular outcome, which is where all anxiety comes from, I'm going to need to step back and take a look at that and go to my therapist and be like, I am really over the top with being with being so anxious about how my kids I work with a go. mom right now. And we've talked about, you know, how, what would it mean for you to just take a step back? Yeah. What would that be like? Right. And so, yeah. So there, like you were saying earlier, there's a lot of different reasons why parents do this, but I think for this documentary specifically, it really is about the narcissistic extension. It really is about privilege. It really is about, listen, if my, if my best friend's kids are going to Harvard, Rick, what can you do? I need, I can't, I can't have his kids going to Harvard and my kids end up at Cal state. Come on, we got to do something, right? It's not even about learning. It's right. not even, it's all about status. And, um, you're right. When this happened, I had the same thought. I'm like, well, I'm not shocked at all that this has happened. And yeah, but I, I see it. It sounds like you see it a lot. I see it a lot. You also teach at USC. So you see it from the other side of people who got in and then the pressure that really starts. Because once you get in, that's yeah. then you actually have to do it. <laughs> I thankfully work in the graduate program, though, which is, yeah, that's different. is very different. And these are, you know, I'm part of that interview process and admissions process. And we, I mean, what we look through and we were highly social justice oriented program. We, we really dig deep and then we interview as well. And so it's, it's a, it's a real vetting process, but undergrad is not, it's, there's so many people that are trying to get in. Some of these kids look really, really good on paper, but they, there's not a whole lot really there. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this, our discussion of the college admissions scandal. What we're going to do next is talk about our horror books and watches. And I actually watched a couple of more uh, true crime documentaries. So I thought that would be in line with what we're doing today. And so I'll talk about those. So we shall be right back. Hello, we are back. <laughs> now we're going to talk books and movies, and we'll get the answers to our horror facts a little bit later. That's so exciting. I wanted to let you know that I did finish The Haunted Vagina. I have mixed feelings about that because I'm going to miss it. Are you going to miss it? I'm yeah. going to miss it too. I, of course, brought you all along for about half of the story, basically. And I thought that was a good way to interest you. <laughs> in the idea of bizarro fiction, which is a particular area of the literary world. And bizarro, B-I-Z-A-R-R-O, is sort of the, uh, one of the quotes I saw was like, the ultimate in outsider literature. Where the haunted mansion goes after what you know from what I've said. The haunted vagina or the haunted Haunted mansion? vagina, sorry. Where the, what did I say? The Haunted Mansion. Oh, cool. Disneyland. I just got back from Disneyland <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. And the Haunted Vagina is really a mansion inside, in a way, I guess. Mm -hmm. But what I can tell you is this. 
It does not go where you think it's going to go. <laughs> it's bizarre. It breaks the, that. this is one of the ideas around this type of literature is it breaks whatever reality you thought was happening. Like in other words, the dude ends up in her vagina as we, as we know from the last time we spoke and a whole nother story takes place inside the vagina. Right. Basically. And it goes to places and lengths that you would not think. You just wouldn't think of these things. It makes it bizarre because we as readers want to go in this place we that's familiar. Like we'll talk right. about the twisted ones in a little bit, mm-hmm. which is which we just finished in our book club. But this is the kind of fiction that just goes in another place like He's in the vagina. He ends up getting stuck in there. He ends up being there for years. He has a whole relationship with someone in there and the reason why that someone is in there and uh, their family and what's happened to, I mean, it's a whole thing. And then it ends with him, you know, kind of coming full circle and having a conversation with the walkie talkie with the, she's inside, he's inside the vagina. But there are other things about what happens that I'm not saying that would be, very, I mean, it's a hundred page book, you guys. If you ever, if you're interested in this kind of thing, I would say go for it because this particular author, Carlton Mellick III, has a ton of these kinds of books and they're meant to be strange and entertaining. I'll ha- I have to tell you, it's if you like absurdity, if you like satire, if you kind of like their grotesque, if you like things that don't follow they go in places where you're like, if you really want to be surprised and go, wait, what is happening? And kind of have your reality blown apart a little bit. I mean, so what is Bizarro? You can, you can Google Bizarro fiction and you'll come up with a bunch of websites, but let me just kind of break it down for you. For those of you who may not know, like simply put, it's a genre of the weird. So what you're reading is going to be weird. The literature is equivalent to the cult section of a video store. So if you like cult movies, you're probably going to like this kind of literature. So like cult movies, Bizarro is sometimes surreal, sometimes avant-garde, sometimes goofy, sometimes bloody. A lot of times borderline pornographic, you know, some of the stuff is. There's one called The Pickled Apocalypse. There you go. Strives It strives not only to be strange, but fascinating, thought-provoking, above all, fun. Because it was a fun read. It was thought-provoking. It was fascinating. There's a character that he meets inside of the vagina <laughs> that was fascinating. Just the way it was described and the way it related with him. And you and the way it related to him at first, you didn't sort of understand where it was coming from or if it was real. And, and then it ends up being a particular type of thing. I don't know. It was really interesting. It's mm. absurd, basically. Yeah. They, they create kind of a, car, like there's a certain cartoon logic to it, which this definitely had that, that character. The characters that he meets inside the vagina are, are cartoon-like. They create an unstable universe where the bizarre becomes the norm and absurdities are made of flesh. The pickled apocalypse of Pancake Island is the oh, whole title. I, I appreciate the yeah. distinction. Because Sorry, I wanted to get that. No, no, that gives us, I, I'm reading on bizarrocentral.com and one of the things it says is Bizarro is like Franz Kafka meets John Waters. I could see that. Dr. Seuss of the post-apocalypse. Takashi Miike 
meets William S. Burroughs. I love that one because I love both those people. Alice in Wonderland for adults. Japanese animation directed by David Lynch. There's a book called The Bizarro Starter Kit. Mm -hmm. And introduces people to the genre. People who you may actually recognize, and I have read as well, a couple of them are in this world, the underground cult kind of outsider's world, but they are people you would recognize, like Chuck Palahniuk, uh, Christopher Moore. I saw him speak once. He's got a lot of very funny books, very famous author. And then there's a whole lot of others that you maybe haven't heard of, and maybe you haven't heard of, you know, Chuck Carlton Mellick III, who wrote The Haunted Vagina, because he's a smaller, more self-published author that I know of. That's how I discovered it. It's just... There's a starter kit list on this website of different authors you can check out. And so I just thought I would expose everyone to that by reading some myself and taking you a little bit through the story. But I can tell you if you want to grab The Haunted Vagina, it's actually well-written, well-reviewed, good story, quick, bizarre, surreal, cartoon-like, all of the stuff that I just said. I do want to tell you, though, that the next book, because now I've got a thing. Now I'm reading now I'm reading little odd books, if you don't mind. What's it called? It's called Kanye West Reanimator. <laughs> she just closed her eyes and looked at me like, what? HP Lovecraft and Joshua oh. Chaplinsky. The okay. re the re reanimated edition. And then at the bottom it says Jesus is just the beginning. Because you know they yes. call yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is The cover's hilarious. Right? I'm going to read the back to you guys. Of Kanye West, who was my friend in college and after he dropped out, I can speak only with extreme sadness. So begins this epic cautionary tale of ambition and hubris. A bizarre mixture of Lovecraft and hip-hop history. Kanye West Reanimator reimagines the classic story, Herbert West Reanimator, with everyone's favorite petulant genius cast in the titular role. So it's Kanye West as a reanimator, which that's delightful. That's going to be a disaster. In it, Kanye West attempts to reanimate a a moribund hip-hop scene. Sorry, don't know that word. Only to come, a dead hip-hop scene maybe? Yeah. (laughs) Only to come to the conclusion that his music is so powerful, it should be used to reanimate the dead. Oh my God. And who better to reanimate than those two legendary titans gone before their time, Biggie and Tupac. Oh my God. Hilarity and carnage ensue. (laughs) So this is a book I've actually had for quite some time. I obviously, those of you who did not know, I collect these little weird ass books. So this one's actually only 100 pages long as well. I will start reading that. And then in in a couple of weeks, I'll let you know what we've got going as far as a premise. Get a few chapters in. Yeah, just like the yeah. Haunted Vagina, I'll get a few chapters in and then give you a little heads up on yeah. where it's what we're what the foundation oh, wow. of Kanye West Reanimator is. How do you follow that? <laughs> do you want to talk about the twisted ones? Sure. We just finished that book in our book club. It is by T. King Fisher. The way we do our book club is we have a book club on our Patreon and then the members of our Discord community. And then every Sunday night we chitty chat along. I break out the book until it yeah, usually three to five parts. And then every Sunday evening we get together and kind of 
chat about where we're at in the book, or people just show up for the voice chat at the end. And this one was picked out by our patron, Blue. She picked a bunch of books, and then we vote which one. So we all had a hand in choosing this book, which is the way I like it. Premise is when a young woman clears out her deceased grandmother's home in rural North Carolina, she finds long hidden secrets about a strange colony of beings in the woods. It's a folk horror. So if you like folk horror, you'd like this. Folk horror isn't my favorite thing in books, but... Same. So what did you think? I think because folk horror is not one of my favorite things in horror, Mm -hmm. I... Liked it more than I thought that I would. Oh, great. So you were going into it thinking, oh, I'm not going to like this at all. Uh, I don't know if I went into it like that, but I was like, you know, we'll see. I, I tried to go into it neutral, but I I didn't have high expectations, not because of Blue or the writer or anything. It's just not my favorite. But I did really appreciate this author and her writing style. The characters are, I think, are, you know, they're not incredibly deep, but they're deep enough that they're fun to follow. And the main character, her, her inner dialogue to me is what carried the book. Yeah. Describe her maybe for people. She's just really cynical (laughs) and um, really, you know, is is constantly admitting to like where she's fucking up and the weird things that she's thinking about. And she's just funny. She's just really, really funny. And I found her to be likable. I know we had a couple people reading. They're like, I don't like her. Um, <laughs> I, I like her and I like her banter with, with the neighbor, Foxy. So I think it, there was a level of humor within the horror that worked for me. I always say Grady Hendrix does that really well. It doesn't always work for me and it worked for me in this book, but I also really liked how descriptive this author was too, because she takes us to this land, you know, this this very supernatural place, whatever. Mm -hmm. And when she starts to describe these creatures, there's, for me, there's a balance of like, the terror of how they're described because they're pretty gross. Yeah. Um, but then also the the main character's reactions and mm-hmm. the way that she describes them made me laugh at the same time. So there's a lot of different things going on that made kept my emotions involved. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what, is it a book that I would have picked up by myself to read? No, but I, I didn't not enjoy it either. That's the great thing about book club. I mean, some people stop into book club and only read, want to read the ones that they from are familiar with and want to read. So we have some people that just jump in for ones that they want to read. <laughs> and then there are other people that treat it like a book club, just like in real life, you know, or face to face life you don't where, know what you're gonna get. where you read all the books to get exposed to other things. So that's the way I approach it, certainly. And in all the books I've ever been in, that's the best way to approach it, in my mm-hmm. opinion. I have a bias to that. Like, don't just jump in for the ones you like are interested in, yeah. but read them all because you're going to get exposed to, and some of them are going to be crap and some won't. Like, who cares? I wouldn't have fallen in love with Grady if it wouldn't, exactly. wasn't, wasn't for Blue's pick on You find new store. authors, right? Yeah. So it's pretty cool. Anyway, I, I'll i tell you what I liked first. I liked the creatures in the woods and that whole part that was kind of confined to the last maybe third of the book even mm-hmm. the last quarter of the book like this last chunk of reading the 75 pages or whatever that we read this last chunk was really where a lot of that was it was yeah uh, there was a little bit in the third chunk or not so you're waiting a really long time for that in my opinion 
I, whereas I really like a slow burn movie, I guess I'm not as thrilled by a slow burn book. Okay. I didn't, and, and maybe, maybe it's because, well, wait, I was trying to do what I liked. Hold on. And I also liked the first chunk in the beginning where she was moving into the house. You know, she moves into this house and it's a hoarder's house, a relative who's died. Her dad has asked her to clean out grandma's house, basically. Right. Grandma. Yep. Uh, yeah. I see. I forget because I got or, we got creatures, aunt or, her, aunt or somebody, yeah. whatever. <laughs> She's cleaning out somebody's house. You see how it goes into creatures, and you're like, whoever's house it was, I don't care. And so there was some hoarder stuff where she was having to clean out different rooms and go in there, and she would find little treasures. And at one point, she finds this journal, and that sort of takes up the middle of the book. And so, and I so I liked that whole front part mm -hmm. as well, where they set it up. And she was finding different things in the different rooms. And there was a little bit of a creep factor. I like that kind of slow burn mm -hmm. where there's a creep factor. And so I kind of liked the first chunk and the last chunk. In the middle, unfortunately, what ended up happening is in folk horror style, unfortunately, and this is maybe why I'm not as into it, is they do the book within the book. So they find this journal and then it's like, for, it felt like 45 oh, chapters was, yeah, of her and the neighbor who's very likable, Foxy, reading this book, her reading the book alone and then her reading it with Foxy and then them forget. It, it went on forever and I thought it really kind of broke the book mm -hmm. uh that chunk being so long and that device and i realize it's used in folk horror quite you know relatively frequently of that book within a book within a book like that whole thing i just uh, i would have dnf'd it at that point probably mm -hmm. or i mean maybe not mindfully dnf'd it but i may, might have set it down and not really picked it up for a long while yeah. because but luckily, and I'm really glad it was a book club selection, so I had to finish. That's mm -hmm. how I, you know, that's how I look at it. So I got to get to this the good chunk at the end. So the that's what I have to say about the plot. Like I just feel like it will just drag. Like it was a, quite a slog there in the middle. The other thing is that I felt and this is kind of harsh, but I felt like the main character, although quirky and amusing, I mm -hmm. totally agree with you with that. I felt like she appeared stupid. We pretty much knew way, way ahead of the character what was going on. And so it ended up being a few, several chapters, not that long, but several chapters of like, really, does she think we don't understand? Why isn't she understanding what is going on? Like we know, and I don't want to ruin it, but there's a, a thing that's happening that we figure out why this this whole situation is happening and, and what the supernatural cause of it is and it just felt like really do you think we're that stupid <laughs> like it's pretty obvious what's happening mm -hmm. and i think at one point she even says the character even says wow it took me a really long time to figure that out i'm i'm surprised i didn't figure that out earlier and i just i don't know that kind of was like oh really so that's mm. so sometimes when you read books i don't know if you guys have this reaction but sometimes when you read books and you feel like insulted because it's like do you think we're that stupid it's kind of like when you watch a movie and it's like okay this is insulting because you think the audience isn't smart enough for you not to explain these 50 pages of xyz mm -hmm. and the audience audiences aren't stupid they're very bright it's like yeah. we can read a book like the only good indians and there is like a lot of not things not explained a lot of 
very creative visual things that are not explained. And the reader is simply expected to track with that. And we do. Mm-hmm. This just felt a little bit pandering okay. like that. That's how I yeah, felt. I, I, I mean, I don't know if I caught that so much as I did the dip in the middle, though. Oh, and, yeah. And I think that maybe because it, it was dipped, sizable, <laughs> because it dipped in the middle, some of that went over me because I felt like I glossed over the middle a lot. So like when I came back into that last because I liked the ending. Yeah, you may have been like tuning out and skimming during the middle part. I, I might have been. And also because it redeemed itself, I just kind of like. And that happens a lot of times yeah, with books, right? Like, yeah. as, But if I'm going to look at it as a whole and be a little bit critical, that's kind of, yeah. those are kind of my thoughts. Okay. I feel like full core, I imagine it's definitely worth a read because it's got all those kinds of elements. Even right. the book within a book, like you may even like that device. And yeah. so we're going to enjoy that. I have something that, I watched that's getting good reviews that I didn't particularly think was worth the reviews that I got. <laughs> Do you have an unpopular opinion? I don't know. It depends on what site I go on. Yeah, fair. So I watched the series Archive 81, um, which is James Wan's new series. Yeah, it's on my list to watch. So you let me know. Okay, so here are my thoughts. It's an American supernatural sci-fi mystery horror Executive produced by Paul Harris Bordeman, James Wan. The series is based on the podcast of the same name about researchers catalog- cataloging the video archive of a missing filmmaker. It's found footage, which I have a love-hate relationship with, first of all. But I saw James Wan's name on it, and I said, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. The- I- I'm speechless just because I feel like I was so annoyed <laughs> by the main character's and their acting and the way that they were directed was mm. just, I'm going insane and I'm breathy. Oh. For eight episodes, I'm just breathy. Oh, It's just so over the top. Like the girl, the main girl, let me go to the cast here. I'm going to be a little bit more explicit. Melody is the, the main character. And you see her. So Dan is the guy that's been hired to go through this footage. His buddy Mark Higgins, played by Matt McGorry, who is the best character in the whole series as far as I'm concerned. If you saw Orange is the New Black, he was so great on that show. I was like, oh my God, there's one redeemable character on the show and it's why I continue to watch it. (laughs) He's somewhat of the comic relief and he's a really smart character that's trying to support Dan and going through this footage, but also realizing like, dude, I'm losing you and you're becoming psychotic and being wrapped in this thing. So Dan is hired by a gentleman who lost his brother in a building called the Visser. Okay. okay. And at that time, during the nineties, at that time, this uh, woman, Melody was, was also doing foot, like going around the Visser and asking people what their experiences were and all this stuff. She disappears. There's all this uh, suspicion, suspiciousness around how she disappears. I'm not giving anything away when I say that Dan's father, who's a psychiatrist, you find out that his dad was treating Melody, so it starts to like pull all this stuff together. Okay. So he's hired to go look through all this footage and then you know the supernatural parapsychology ensues and there's parts of it that are really strong. I think the storyline wasn't bad and I thought that that was intriguing and and there's like some twists and turns and some really creepy factors but I hated both the leads 
Yeah, that makes it really difficult I to want to keep watching. And I don't think they were bad actors. I think they were fucking boring. Oh, And no. she was just constantly breathy. I gotta get it. <laughs> that was her whole character. Yeah, the one note is not going to last for a series. Nope. Nope. And then he was just flat affect, deer in headlights. I don't know what I need to da, da, da. Oh, no. And then Matt McGorry, he was the best part. And he comes in, and he has a, like, you know, he's a supporting role, but he's in every episode. And it was like, oh, thank God. Like, these are the scenes that I'm, re- and he has a pretty active role in, in also trying to figure out what's been going on. The, where the story goes is really cool. Uh, and I just think that those two characters made it so boring for me oh, no. that if those other, if they would have been directed differently, I don't even think it was the actors because. It, or I, if those were the ancillary characters yeah. that you only had to put up with every now and then, that would have been better. <laughs> but I was just like, and I wanted to get through it because the story was good, but I'm like, oh my God, they're driving me nuts. And so I really had to force myself to finish it so maybe the people that really enjoyed it just didn't have that reaction to those maybe characters not. like because it sounds like the story is pretty good but the character those characters just really ruined it for you they did for me yeah yeah gotcha yeah so i also watched mcmillions which is a documentary mini mini series about the mcdonald's monopoly promotion mm. scam that mm-hmm. occurred between 1989 and 2001 The series details uh, how the scam was perpetrated by Jerry Jacobson, the head of security of the agency that ran the promotion. And uh, it's six episodes long. It's, it's really good. I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's on HBO. It's a bit of, you know, it's six episodes. So it's one of those ones where you got to kind of get through it. It, it It originally aired at Sundance, like the first couple of episodes or what have you last year, the year before, whenever that was. I think it was two years ago and I did not see it as part of Sundance because I knew it had a deal. I don't, I try not to watch too many things at Sundance that already have deals because I know they're going to come onto streaming and like, what's the point? Mm -hmm. But I do try to see some things ahead of time, but this one I didn't. And I, cause I just, I don't know these true crime docs. It's like, they're really hit or miss and I don't want to waste my time, (laughs) but this one was pretty good. Uh, There are some characters in it, meaning like the guy, the FBI guy, the, one of the head FBI guys that that kind of led the investigation is a real character. Okay. He's like really kind of funny, very yeah. extroverted. He's He laughs at himself. He's really amusing. So that that kind of, that charisma really brightens it up sure. too, right? Like a lot of times we watch these things and the FBI is just like, so then we went to the thing. And then you're like, okay. Yeah. Not an actor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's fine. But this guy is like undercover as one of the game show guys and went to these houses and it was really inventive with the way they caught these people. Wow. So... But not only do you do they have the FBI people, but they have all of the people that that bought the the stubs, the winning tickets, and it was all based on buying a instant winner million dollars, million dollar instant winners. And the security guy from McDonald's, the head security guy, is the one that was pulling off stealing them. And you don't find out how he stole them until the very end, which is one of the things you find out. And you follow these people's stories. And that's what's kind of cool is that you're literally getting their blow by blow all the way through the episodes of the people and how they ended up in a situation where they personally bought a million dollar instant winner from someone. Mm. 
you know, and, and what they were going through and how they did it and what ended up happening to them and how they were, and, and you're tra- and then you're also tracking the FBI case. Mm-hmm. So it's constructed really well. I like it when, yeah, we all like it when a true crime doc has all the people that were involved exactly. being interviewed. That's, that's really what the public wants. Right. You can't, not, you, not, you can't like bullshit a, it. Yeah. Well, and that was the problem with the Varsity Blues one is it was like a mockumentary in some ways, it felt like. Yeah. I mean, if Lori Laughlin and Felicity Huffman were in that documentary. That would have been a game changer. Damn interesting. Yeah. Because we would have really heard their psychological process. Yep. And any kind of reflection. But I understand why their PR people aren't going to let them do that. No. Like, I get it. Yeah. Understood. Yeah. But if they were even asked, probably not. But anyway, I enjoyed that and I would recommend it. Cool. And then I also watched the Tinder Swindler, which is a newer documentary that's out on Netflix. And it's about this sociopath con man named Simon Levy. And it's good. It's a good one. And now this is not a series, which I really appreciated. It's a movie. (laughs) You don't have to sit through six episodes of garbage to get to like the good part. This is a movie and it's about Simon who has many different names, but that's, that's the name he was using here is um, he conned a lot of women. And so out of their riches and money, and we've heard that story time and time again. What was interesting to me about it was that one, I have been in contact with con men before in my personal life and in the world and in my professional life. So I understand it was fascinating for me to see that play out because I've known sociopaths. And so I know how they can operate and he was incredibly successful. Uh, the sociopaths I've known in my personal and professional life have not as been successful as Simon, (laughs) at least not with me. So, this is a guy who was basically cashing in with one person to pay for the deeds with another person and then just cycling them out. Okay. And the interesting, now there's nothing particularly original about that except for the fact that how long he got away with it, how many women he did it to, how young he was. And also this particular documentary, you talk to two or three of the women and they're actually the people that are, moving you through the story and by the end there's an interesting way there's an interesting a couple of ways that it gets it's paid off cool he gets caught i mean duh we wouldn't have the story if he didn't he gets caught but the way he gets caught and how the women uh, have some control over that and help with that is really cool and interesting and there's a little bit of a couple of pieces at the end the women that are involved in it that are interviewed are charismatic as well and interesting to listen to and very emotional at some points and laughing at other points. Like just, I thought it was well put together and I would say, you know, an hour and a half or two hours of your time. It's, it's worth it. If you, especially, you know, next week we're going to be talking about Bundy today. We talked about another sociopathic narcissist that was a con man. So I just watched that one. And if that's one of the true crime kind of subgenres that you're interested in looking at the, these sociopathic con men, it would be right up your alley. Cool. So yeah, I think you watched another movie too. Uh, yeah. I'm just going to throw in a, a cheesy one that I watched. Nice. I, I like to throw in some of like the, the terrible slashers. I watched one called seance. 
from I, 2021. Oh, I've seen that one. Um, Camille Meadows is the new girl at the prestigious El Divine Academy for Girls. Soon after her arrival, six friends invite her to join them in a late night ritual, calling forth the spirit of a dead former student who reportedly haunts the halls. But before morning, one of the girls is dead, leaving the other others wondering what they may have awakened. So this is like, if you're in the mood for a craft wannabe cast movie, fun, cheesy horror. <laughs> this is it. Uh, there were some really cool parts of it. The ending was terribly um, predictable, but there's some badass, like, you know, female fighting scenes that I thought were really fun to watch. So, you know, it's like your campy, just, I don't know. Yeah, it reminded me of like a, a wannabe craft. Yep, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. that's kind of about, it's, it's kind of like, meh, whatever. Yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> so on your scale of, I don't know, one to 10, where do you, where would you put it on the sort of slasher, whatever scale? As a slasher, probably give it like five and a half, six. As a movie? Yeah. About that? Yeah. Kind of, kind of like, meh. It's meh. Yeah, but, but that sounds parts. like, but that sounds like worth a watch. Throw it on on a Sunday afternoon kind it, of thing. It's, it's my if you want something mindless. Okay, gotcha. Right? It's just one of those. I but there were some really fun scenes in it that I liked, but the ending was like, ah, eh, no shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair enough. It's not nothing profound, guys. Okay, <laughs> no, no. All right, so let's get to those beautiful answers to the horror facts with calf. Which okay. I probably know none of them, to be quite particularly honest about the whole thing. Um, <sighs> four, I would think you would know. All right, number one. This I'm, is uh, this 1990 horror film was Walt Disney Studios' Hollywood debut film, directed by Frank Marshall, whose formula modeled this film after Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. I was trying to think if he's done one with any kind of animals or anything. It's a horror. It's a horror. Wasn't there like a, mm, you guys probably know this. There's like a snake one or something that he did. It's not, not a snake one, but you're on the right track. Spiders? Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Spider movie. What's the only spider What's horror movie ever made? <laughs> right. What is it called when you're afraid of spiders? Arachnophobia. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Okay. <laughs> I like how you worked yourself through that. I, I try that. I try really hard because I don't know the answers generally, yeah. but especially with trivia. So well, I have to go like, I have to use the like clues. deductive reasoning. That, that, that's exactly what you have to do. Cause how would you, you know, that's exactly why I try to put in clues to break it down. Okay. And so I go with you on that because, well, it would be silly if I just didn't even try to think about it. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, and it makes sense, right? The birds, like they were everywhere. For sure, okay. sure. For sure. Um, zombie lore dictates that there are only two ways to kill a zombie what are they you've seen the walking dead you've seen zombie movies well yeah Take the one guess. that comes right to mind of course is um anything puncturing the brain yep so going for the brain and something related to that what might be one other way to kill them oh related to going for the brain yeah mm, chopping their head off there you go okay cool <laughs> you go walked for, me through that thank you go for the brain cut off the head <laughs> or cut off the head um okay what 80s serial killer said choking is what i did and what i was pretty good at, and i was pretty good at it in addition to this he told police that sometimes he'd go back to the disposal sites and have sex with his dead victims yeah i don't know this one at all this is gary ridgeway the green river killer oh yeah we, talk, we talked about him yeah we've never done an episode solely on him but you we talked have, about him though right mm -hmm. well i've talked about uh not the green river killer we talked about the last week 
or two weeks ago, what were they called? The guys that they ended up being two of them. Oh, the, I'm going to have to, I'll look that up. Yeah. Uh, number four, what rating was originally signed to Midsommar? Well, I mean, I assume it's rated R now. Yeah. And there's only a couple of other choices. I'm assuming NC-17. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because it wouldn't have been Which X. makes a lot of sense. Oh, yeah, it does. I imagine they cut out some stuff that was even more horrific. Maybe it's on the Blu-ray or something. Yeah. Oh, I'm know. sure. That suicide scene alone was terrible. Yeah, and all the stuff with the sex and all mm-hmm. that yeah. at one point. It was yeah. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot. <laughs> Number five. This horror novelist was a college dropout who published his first book at 18. He is known to have created the detective genre. Hey, I don't know that one either. I would not have known it by these clues either, but I thought it was a cool fact. And it's um, Edgar Allan Poe. Oh. And uh. it, Murders in the Rue Morgue was known to be the first detective genre. Oh, I mean, the first detective. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, we learned I really want to see Death on the Nile, by the way. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm let's put it Christie. on the list, damn it. Horror. <laughs> put it on the list thank you so much for the facts we learn things every time and thank you all so much for listening we will be back next week with our fifth installment of the ted bundy reboot that we're doing thank you so much for listening this has been an episode of terror talk my name is shannon and i'm kathy sleep safe everyone (laughs) 